Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Well, everyone is talking about the crazy and tragic story of the poor little French bulldog puppy who perished in the overhead bin of a United flight just the other day. Uh, Apparently, people were listening to the dog bark for a while, and then the barking stopped, and uh, the dog died. So, so many questions are raised by this. Legal questions, uh, regulation questions, just human nature. What happened that this could possibly transpire, Uh, especially with the situation with all the airlines now and United has been under such appropriate scrutiny and everyone's talking about animals on planes and a lot to explore here. And fortunately, our buddy, Bob Ferber, former Los Angeles animal cruelty prosecutor is here and we are going to find out what Bob thinks about all this. Hey, Bob. Hi, Peter. Nice to talk with you. Likewise. Okay, so uh, I laid out a little bit of the story. Almost, I mean, everyone's talking about it. Pretty much everyone knows the basic facts, but what's your understanding of what happened to this poor little pup? Well, you know, first of all, you know, we live in a country now where there's a rush to judgment, <laughs> and there's a, there's a flood of news stories, and now some more information has come out. Uh, ultimately, we, we may learn more, but we're sort of reliant on what we hear in the news. Yeah. Uh, United Airlines said that they've concluded their investigation, and uh, they're simply reporting that uh, they said they take full responsibility. What that means, you know, that that may depend on if this goes into a courtroom or not, Mm -hmm. but... uh, they're saying that the flight attendant is saying that she didn't know that the dog was in the carrier. Uh, there seems to be a fair amount of evidence or corroboration by other people that she had to have known that uh, it was a dog, a, an airline-approved carrier, and apparently, as you said, people heard the dog barking. And the little girl, the 11-year-old, was interviewed, and it's not clear, but she did say something to the effect of... You, when the woman, the flight attendant, told her to put the dog in the overhead bin, she complained, it's a dog, it's a dog. Now, the flight attendant, whether she, we don't know whether she actually heard it, but again, it's a little hard to believe that somebody with a dog carrier, somebody would say put a dog in a dog carrier and not check or even not assume even that there's a dog in it. Why else would somebody have a carrier? Uh so we're going to have to see how the facts, if there's more facts that come out. But it's, as you said, it's extremely embarrassing for the airline. Uh, we, you and I have talked about this before on the show, the, that uh, there's been just so much news about animals on, on airplanes from, you know, the, the service animals, the comfort animals, the emotional support animals. Uh, there was the story about the peacock that was refused to be was refused to go on a plane. Uh, there's a story about a little a kid who had a tiny little dwarf hamster. Was told he couldn't bring the little dwarf hamster on the plane as a support animal. As an attorney, I'm always reluctant to rush to judgment because usually you find out things are not quite the way they were in the news reports. But this is definitely a tragic story, and it, it's really hard to believe that a flight attendant. Uh, 
didn't know. Uh, but then again, Peter, you know, we're, we're all humans. The list, your listeners are. It's hard to believe that a flight attendant would intentionally put a puppy up there. And so I, I'm at a loss for words as to explain how something like this actually happened. Right, right. And, and there's the other part that... You know, we, we, we've seen over the last couple of years, airlines have become rather intimidating. Flight attendants have ordered people off the planes. They've had them dragged off of the planes. People who have just simply protested because they've been on a tarmac for four hours and they're kicked off the plane, sometimes arrested. I, I've seen it myself. Flight attendants who threaten passengers who simply make a verbal complaint and the flight attendant threatens to call the police. So, but you wonder, even in spite of all that, how could people be on an airplane and hear a dog barking and no one screams and yells, uh, you know, regardless of rules, regulations, or intimidation? It, it, it astounds me. Um, let's talk about uh, that carrier for a second. So let's uh, presume or believe that this was an airline-approved carrier. It should have been able to fit underneath the seat in front and and uh there's the report that it will it was sticking out into the aisle and that led to right. uh, so there's something not quite right there if there's something else in the seat that certainly should have been moved in favor of the dog and the carrier so something's weird there maybe the carrier wasn't approved and it got on when it shouldn't have or uh, so i agree with you maybe yeah. there's more facts to know i'm only reading from the news that the first day when it came in the news somebody, either the airline or somebody admitted it was an airline-approved carrier. So I'm relying on that. Whether I saw a picture of it, I don't know if it's an airline-approved carrier either. I was wondering also, why was it in the aisle? I think this this all points to that we have a, a scattered reaction around the country with different airlines of how they're going to deal with this, and that's not the way it should be dealt with. No matter what airline you're on, no matter what flight you're taking, no matter where you're going, you should be able to know this is what I need to do, this is what I can expect from the airline, This is, and that I can be pretty much guaranteed that my animal is going to arrive safely. And so I, I, I don't accept these responses from the different airlines coming up with different rules and regulations. It doesn't help the passengers, and it certainly doesn't help the animals. So I, I'm waiting to see. I can see nothing short of federal regulations that really create a pattern, I mean, not a pattern, a scheme of, of how to handle animals. Okay, so let's say that it's determined through the investigation that uh, the airline personnel knew or should have known that uh, a live animal was up there. Uh, what sort of legal remedies or uh, uh, options are available to the family of the dog? There's two. One is... Let me add uh, just a little footnote to what you just said. Uh, when there's a crime that happens in an airplane, uh, typically, unless usually federal law does not apply. Usually crimes that happen in an airplane, let's say a passenger is unruly or beats somebody else up or tries to open up a, a, a door in flight, it depends which state it's over. Whether it's Texas or whatever, and so uh, flights taking. So this flight apparently, uh, there's animal cruelty investigators from Texas. Apparently, this happened over or it started at an airport in Texas. So there's an investigation going on, a cruelty investigation. Uh, that would be a criminal case. So 
potentially the flight attendant could be responsible, could be held accountable criminally and charged with animal cruelty. Animal cruelty isn't just an intentional act of, I want to hurt that animal. It can be also neglect. And uh, and now, it all depends on the facts, but it's conceivable that you could prove that this flight attendant knew or should have known, and under most state laws, neglecting an animal, not providing it food, water, oxygen, obviously, is a crime. And it's punishable typically by a fine and manage, and, and the maximum sentences can include jail. Whether that's going to happen or not remains to be seen. Civilly, which is probably the more likely uh, outcome in this case, the family has a, a, a potential lawsuit against both the airline, actually a against a lot of people. Uh, All the people that were involved in the chain of events, uh, from the people that may have, let's say, security people that may, let's say it was not an airline-approved carrier, or let's say it wasn't marked properly. Airline personnel are responsible for making sure that baggage that goes on the plane is is what it's supposed to be, and clearly marked. And so, you know, when you try to board an airplane, uh, they're looking at your baggage, They everything goes through security. So anybody that was involved in the handling of that or, or checking on that animal as it went through and ended up on the airplane could be held responsible. As And clearly the flight attendant could be held civilly responsible. Also, the airline itself as a corporation can be held responsible. Uh, Especially because, as the news is pointing out, there seems to be a pattern with United Airlines, or at the very least, the, the suggestion is that they've been more negligent and more animals have died in their, on their flights than compared to some other airlines. Whether or not the percentage is out of whack, we don't really have enough information yet. But you can sue the airline for a, a failure to train their personnel, the failure to have... Uh, rules and regulations in place. Uh, There's a number of ways or or legal theories to go after the airline itself. But what could you expect to recover uh, if, let's say, this is a uh, $1,000 bulldog? That's the big question. Uh, in, In most parts of the country, actually in all parts of the country, it's almost impossible uh, to recover anything other than the value, the market value of an animal. So if you have a puppy that was a bred pu- that you got it a, through a breeder and you paid $1,000, you could arguably recover the $1,000, the, uh, clearly the, the uh, you could argue that the, the owners, well, I think the puppy was about nine months old, whatever money was involved in training, whatever money for food, vet care, anything that went towards the actual cost of owning that animal. Emotional support, emotional distress, though, that's mm-hmm. what, throughout the country, there's a, there's a big effort in the legal world to recover damages for emotional distress. That can be in the thousands or the hundreds of thousands or even the millions of dollars. And there is a, a, a a, a trend in many of the courthouses around the country where judges are starting to recognize that animals are not just objects, but that they're 
living creatures that can not only suffer, but that we have attachments as humans to them the way we do with other people. As everybody is saying, this should never have happened. United Airlines has publicly said this should never have happened. Well, as an attorney, my answer is it did happen. And who's responsible? Who created the rules and the regulations? You, the airline, did. You're going to pay for it. Yeah. And these people suffered, and you should you should pay for that. So we'll see what happens. Thanks, Bob. That's Bob Ferber. More with animals today after the break. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. In 2011, a story about animals, cold weather, and the airlines got our attention. If you didn't hear it the first time, we think it's worth listening to it now, as parts of our country are still very cold, and it serves as another strong reminder as to why we should exercise extreme caution about allowing the airlines to dictate what happens to our pets. Okay, let's listen now. A kitten died of hypothermia immediately after being transported in a Delta airplane. So I wondered, how common is this? How often do pets die on planes? What went wrong in this particular case that led to this poor cat's death? And what are the options available to people who need to transport their pets? And what do we need to know about pet travel, whether it's traveling with us or your pet is traveling alone? I'd like to welcome Heather Lombardi, whose poor, hairless kitten perished shortly after being on a commercial transport flight. Heather, welcome to Animals Today. Thank you very much. Heather, why don't you tell my listeners what happened? Um, Well, we had arranged her flight this past, it was January 22nd, it was a Saturday night. Um, Her flight was scheduled to come in to Connecticut at 8.40. Um, So my family and I, my two children and husband, we went to the airport, uh, went right to, you know, the cargo area, and we were told to sit down. The plan was scheduled to land on time. So we took a seat and, um, you know, tried to have some patience. And um, at 8.50, 10 minutes after the plane had landed, I hadn't hadn't seen my kitten come out. So, you know, I went back up to, to the, the very nice woman who was at the counter, and I just asked her for an update. And I, I told her, you know, it's really cold out there. The kitten has no hair. I'm getting concerned. And uh, she informed me that I guess there was a stuck latch in the, um, on the plane and that they were doing everything that they could to remove her, and they would have her out as soon as possible. Um, I had paid for her to be in climate control cargo, as well as um, another $70 to have her have expedited service. It's called Delta Dash. So I I thought she was in a nice, warm cabin. Um, So I went and I I sat back down with my family and uh, just waited. And at um, 9.30, they, they opened the cargo door, and they brought the carrier out. And I looked in, and I just, I knew something was wrong. And, um... 
I went up to the counter, the lady uh, he, who un- removed the zip ties. I, I took the carrier to the floor. She was laying in the front of the, the carrier, and she was so cold. And she, I picked her up, and she was she was just limp. I, I put her I put her right into my coat. I grabbed my kids' hands, and we rushed out of the airport. Uh, turned on my SUV. We we put the heat on as high as it would go, and I'm. I started rubbing her in front of the heating vents, trying to warm her, and uh, she just looked up at me, and she, and she cried, and I just knew she had to go to the vet, and we, we took her, we took her to the vet, we were, we drove, but on the way, she let out the most awful blood curdling cry I've ever heard. Oh, Heather, life. we're so sorry. I know how much pain this is for you. Okay, so she died on the the way to the veterinarian's office, um, and um, uh, let me let me ask you something, Heather. Are, are you surprised as to how much attention the story's been given around the world? You know something, not at all. I'm not surprised by it because you know something. I don't know. I I, I don't know about you, but animals are they're, they're alive. They're living. They're they're precious. They they deserve to be respected. The fact that this happened is, is just um, I just I didn't know. Heather, what would you like my listeners to learn from this tragedy? Basically, that there's a lot of risks involved that aren't publicized with travel when it comes to the airlines. Um, when a plane lands, it's not pressurized any longer. And when it's no longer pressurized, it's no longer climate controlled. Uh, they don't tell you that. So if there's a hang-up on the runway for any reason, any reason whatsoever, your animal is sitting in a area that is not climate controlled, whether it be too hot or too cold. They have no heat. They have no air conditioning. And I mean, and, when it, if they're out and there you didn't know that. And no. you didn't know that. You you no. just you paid for extra climate control. You paid for what was called this dash, which I looked it up, Heather. It's it's Delta Cargo's flight specific small express package surface. So shipping a pet with dash, as you did, tried to do, gives it priority and fastest fastest transit time available, meaning you know last in first out. So you did what you thought was was best. You had no idea that climate control wasn't um, wasn't controlled. The climate during 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 uh, on the plane on the tarmac or unloading and loading, um, Heather Delta made you an offer of compensation, which is astounding and disappointing to say the very least. Tell us about that. Um, well, I've been going back and forth initially with. Delta claims, and unfortunately, they ended up putting me with the people who handle lost luggage, um, which I was mortified with to begin with. I would think that they would have an animal welfare division or somebody who makes sure that the animals are safe or deals with issues when there are issues, because it's very specialized. And um, the whole time, I just wanted to know what went wrong and what they were going to do to fix it, um, to make sure that no other animal ever had had to go through that again. And um, at the end of the process, which was this past week, I received an email from the, the claims manager um, that, I mean, was just truly showed me the integrity of the company. Um, they basically offered, they put a value on my animal's life, on Snickers' life of $10. And they yeah, used, that's incredible. Yeah, they, they determined her, quote-unquote, value by using dimensional weight. They took the carrier, which has a dimensional weight of 20 pounds, and multiplied it times 50 cents. 50 cents. How do you put a value on life? Nonetheless. You, you can't. Right. 
Heather, you thank you so much for telling your story. And of course, we're so, so sorry to hear what happened to you, your family, and, and especially the kitten. Thank you so very much for helping, helping just get the word out there. Thank you so much. Listen, I reached Delta spokesperson Anthony Black, and he declined to speak about any details concerning this case, but agreed to answer a few general questions by email. If an animal dies related to flying on Delta, does Delta have a policy how to compensate the owner? And so his reply, and and I'm going to paraphrase here, if Delta is at fault, then Delta will pay. And he mentioned the word dash like like Heather did in a few few minutes ago. Maximum liability fee is $750 or declared value. Then he states if no value is declared, their liability is 50 cents per pound. Each incident is researched and evaluated on the merits of that situation. Necropsies are done to establish whether the death was a result of Delta's actions or some other reason. That's what he states. Let me get this straight. The kitten comes out of the plane, frozen solid. Delta will somehow get the dead kitten back from the owner. They go through the process and to the extent of doing a necropsy on the animal to see how the animal died and if, and if it was a result of Delta's actions then Delta pays the owner 50 cents per pound. So Heather mentioned uh, earlier they offered her $10 as compensation. $10! Now, Heather didn't mention they won the cat back for necropsy. So liability and fault have been established if they've already offered her $10 for a living, breathing, sentient being that froze to death on their plane. More with Animals Today right after the break. Welcome back to the show. I'm pleased to welcome Matt Ellerbeck. He is a favorite popular guest on the show. He is a snake advocate and conservationist and always brings us a wealth of uh, interesting perspective about them. Well, hi, Matt. Hi, how are you today? Just fine. Okay, I thought I would throw out these uh, two little tidbits here, and maybe you can uh, react. Recently, we uh, had Dr. Robert Reed, a veterinarian who uh, who is also a frequent guest and gives us all sorts of perspective on uh, the health of our uh, companion animals. And we were talking about snake bites and dogs and prevention and treatment and the vaccines and other related topics about uh, snakes and, uh, and dogs. And uh, he gratefully reminded us that these snakes that we're talking about, usually rattlesnakes, they are uh, part of the ecosystem. They have an important role and we shouldn't be afraid of them. We should just uh, let them be which was nice to get that reminder. And then just uh, today, uh, I saw a news report coming from a small town in New Mexico, and uh, they're having uh, problems with skunks and uh, snakes. And uh, the skunks, the police are responsible for relocating them, and they trap them, and they just move them. And uh, the snakes, however, they have no mechanism really to deal with the snakes, usually rattlesnakes also, except for just shooting them. And it's really sad that they don't have the the resources and or the training or whatever that that is the fate of these uh, snakes who who haven't done anything wrong. So... uh, uh, what do you think about it? Any any of those things? Well, the first thing is I think what the veterinarian touched on is really important to remind people that, you know, snakes 
are absolutely vital to the health of the ecosystem. So if you care about animals and nature and wildlife and the environment as a whole, you have to accept snakes. You can't have a healthy environment without snakes. So if you want to be, you know, a wildlife lover or, or a nature lover or you like birding or you like aspects of nature, you have to remember that to have all those things, we absolutely have to have the snakes. And then the second thing is um, what you mentioned was said was, you know, about just leaving them alone. That is the absolute best advice that you can give someone about snakes and it's unfortunate that so many people are afraid of them and most of the things you hear about them in the media or in movies you sort of just really portrays them in such a negative light that all snakes are these murderous monsters that are trying to attack and kill people and that if you step out into an area where there's rattlesnakes they will chase you down and kill you but really that is the furthest thing from the truth snakes are very shy animals for the most part that would like to avoid people whenever they can I was up in the Georgian Bay surrounded by rattlesnakes a couple summers ago. There, I was in between where there was two of them, and the snakes were just kind of sitting under these rocks, coiled up. They weren't trying to attack me or chase me or hurt me or anything like that. They were just kind of sitting there quietly. And when I approached a little closer to get a photograph, the one rattled very slightly. And that was its way of saying, you know, just leave me alone. And because I didn't pursue any closer, I didn't try to capture the animal or anything like that, it didn't strike at me it didn't bite it didn't even rattle anymore it just gave that initial rattle and that was that animal's way of saying just leave me alone so it's funny that people have these horrible misconceptions about snakes when really you know they want nothing to do with us and over the course of the last 13 years I have literally seen thousands of snakes in the wild. Um, and I was in a rattlesnake den uh, last fall, or no, sorry, a water snake den last fall. And I was surrounded by, you know, dozens and dozens of these large, heavy bodied snakes. And none of them tried to attack me or bite me or wrap around me or anything like that. So, it, again, it's just trying to use my own experiences to reiterate the fact that snakes are not trying to hurt us. And in fact, NC State University did a study a few years ago where they found that almost all snake bites on people that happen in the United States are because someone is trying to capture or kill the snake. So if you're out hiking or camping or cottaging and you see a snake and you're afraid of them or you're a little wary about them, you don't have to have someone come out and shoot it or kill it or get rid of it. All you have to do is walk away and leave that animal alone, and I promise it's not going to hurt you. And again, having them there, it's incredibly vital to the ecosystem. So that's my main message is just to kind of promote coexistence and let people know that we can coexist with these animals. They're not out to get us. Matt, when you talk to children, I know you uh, like to do a lot of educating about snakes. Um, Do they come in with a preconception about them? Are those fears present uh, when you talk to them, or are they uh, just open, ready to learn about snakes? Most children are completely open to snakes. In fact, I was um, out yesterday, and I had I was I had a little ball python with me, and there was a little girl that 
immediately I said, did you want to pet the snake? And she said, oh, yes. And you could see her mother, like, kind of standing in the background all horrified. So, you know, kids are so open-minded, but unfortunately those you know, behaviors can be learned, a learned thing from from their parents. So it's unfortunate that, you know, if, you know, adults listening to this, if you want your kids to grow up with an, an appreciation for animals and wildlife, and, and, and that means all animals, not just the, you know, quote unquote, cute and cuddly ones, it's really important to try to, you know, have positive attitudes about it because you can pass them on to their your children. But luckily, you know, when when I do do outreach and I'm going to be doing, I'm actually doing a, a March break camp tomorrow um, and I'll be talking to a bunch of kids, you know, they usually have a very open mind. Now, sometimes older kids, you know, they can lose touch of that. And I remember last summer I was at an event and I had a big rat snake and some of the kids actually when they first saw it they were like oh my god kill it kill it it's awful and you know immediately kind of had those really negative responses but you know I sat down with them all they kind of formed a semicircle, and I said look look at this snake it's sitting here with me surrounded by all these people and what is it doing it's not biting it's not hissing it's not wrapping around me it's not trying to hurt anyone it's just sitting here on my arm like it would a tree branch and they all kind of looked at it and observed it and so okay he's right it's not doing anything aggressive and then I said now watch I'll walk around if you want to pet him you can you don't have to but I just want to let you guys know if you want to just you know very gently pet the snake and then I you know the first few children pet him and you can see the other ones watching their peers and they see them touch the snake and the snake again is not being aggressive it's its body language isn't changing and by the end of it the ones that initially were like oh it's awful kill it we're petting the snake and saying they loved it. So sometimes, you know, the great thing about kids is often they are open-minded, but even the ones that have those initial negative responses, it's just about getting them to look at it from a different perspective. And then often once they do, and they have those positive experiences with the snakes, you can change their mind. So that is a really wonderful experience to, you know, have those moments. We've been speaking with Matt Ellerbeck, and to learn more about snakes, go to SaveAllSnakes.com. Matt, some older kids, teenagers and young adults, uh, they want to have snakes and other reptiles as pets. There's something they find interesting or alluring or exotic or dangerous or whatever. What do you think about having snakes as pets? I have a lot of mixed feelings about this. Um, You know, just like dogs and cats, there's a lot of snakes that do end up, you know, in captive settings that need to be rescued and adopted because, you know, they were captive bred. They can't be sent back into the wild, especially, say, if there's a snake that ends up online, someone's trying to find a home for it, and the snake is a boa constrictor. They're native to Central America. You can't release them into the wilds of, you know, the United States. So those animals do need good homes just the same as domesticated dogs and cats do. The issue that I have with it is that you're right. Unfortunately, some people don't look at it in the way that, okay, this is an animal that is now in captive settings. It can't go back to the wild because of many variables, so it needs a good forever home. They're looking, a lot of people, and not all of them, but a lot of them, unfortunately, like you said, do look at it as, oh, you know, snakes, they're scary, and the shock value and the novelty of it, and I, I just don't see it 
as you know, uh, you know, one of these things where it's an individual trying to contribute to the betterment of that animal or, or its quality of life. It's more about having it almost as a prop, and you know, and I cringe when I see that because if you know they're trying to obtain these animals to, you know, be sensationalistic with them and scare other people with, you know, it it's just backing up all those negative things. So, you know, there it's a very complicated issue. Like, you know, if there is a snake that needs a home, I would love if a caring individual would look after it and give it a good home, but. You know, I absolutely, like I said, it, it's. I think it's so detrimental when people are wanting to obtain them purely, you know, to feed their own ego because in their mind they're now, you know, having dominion over something that's scary and, and, and freaks people out and, and they're dangerous and all of that. And I think the people that get them for those reasons are just doing so much more harm to the animals as a whole because it just backs up all those negative things that we were just talking about. So in a, in a large portion of that, I don't think it's a good thing. We're speaking with Matt Ellerbeck, snake advocate and conservationist. And uh, Matt, briefly, let's conclude with your thoughts about the problem with invasive snakes, such as in the Everglades, where they are just wrecking the natural ecosystem. Uh, what I don't see any great solution for that problem. They have teams that are going out hunting them and killing them and turning them into, you know, boots and belts. Yeah, again, it's an extremely complicated issue. Um, Invasive species are absolutely horrid for the environment and to a whole myriad of animals. So, again, if anyone listening to this, you can do your part. If you ever do obtain a pet and you don't want it anymore, no matter what it is, do not release it into the wild. Yeah. Because, again, you're just contributing to that problem. Um, the pythons in Florida, yeah, there isn't an easy answer to that. Often, from just looking at many other examples, often when invasives are introduced into an area, it's very, very hard to get rid of them. You can sort of employ mitigation efforts um, to alleviate the problem a little bit, but it is very, very hard. To, to stop it completely. So my kind of thought process is, you know, at least use that example for education and, and try to prevent it from happening again. It's really unfortunate that, you know, again, what we were just talking about, that when they're trying to remove the snakes, often I feel like there is a lot of sensationalism around it yeah. where it's not, okay, we're trying to do this to help the ecosystem where, you know, oh, we're python hunters and we're killing these scary animals and we're going to make them into boots. Like, I just feel like, the approach, again, comes from a very um, a, a bad place. Well, thanks. That's Matt Ellerbeck, snake advocate and conservationist. We look forward to speaking with you uh, shortly again. And thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. More with animals today after the break. Welcome back to the show. You know, so many popular songs refer to animals or have animals in their titles. And not so long ago, Peter earned a B minus on my animals in songs quiz. Not so hot. So I've decided to give him another chance, a chance for redemption in a little test about animals in music. Okay, Peter? Okay. Okay, we're going to start with a lightning round. Tell me the group who sang the following songs. Horse with no name. America. 
Wild Horses. Rolling Stones. Blackbird. The Beatles. Eye of the Tiger. Um, that is, I can't remember. Survivor. Oh, yeah. That was a powerful one. Hey, Bulldog. Hey, Bulldog is more Beatles. Hound Dog. Elvis. Black Dog. Black Dog is uh, Led Zeppelin. You got it. Okay. Very good. Yeah. When Doves Cry. When a uh, Prince. Karma Chameleon. Oh, uh, Boy George. Culture Club. Boy George? Yeah. Okay. Fly Robin Fly. Oh, that is a disco thing that we used to play. Uh, Fly Robin Fly. The something Connection? The, Silver uh, Connection. Oh, uh, yeah. Silver Convention. Excuse oh, me. Silver I'm, Convention. Uh, Silver Convention. Was that a one-hit wonder? Definitely. <laughs> you remember that song? I do. That was a good song, yeah, though. Yeah. How can you just have a one-hit wonder? I know. It's if a tragedy. If you could do one. I know. You can do a couple more. <laughs> I know. I know. Pigs on the Wing. Pigs. That is more Pink Floyd. Piggies. More Beatles. Disco Duck. Oh, oh, Disco Duck. That is a, uh, like Rick Dees and yeah. his band of idiots or yes. something like that. and his cast of idiots. Cast of idiots. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I've got that 45 somewhere, believe it or not. I've just revealed something embarrassing right there. Union of the Snake. Don't know. Duran Duran. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do the Funky Chicken. Do, do the Funky, do the Funky Chicken, the Funky. Don't know. Rufus Thomas. Mm. The lions sleep tonight. Oh, oh, I. Mm. That's the Wimbawep song. I don't know who that is. The tokens. Oh yeah. Now the tokens. That's just not fair. Why? That's still in your. No, it's not. Okay. <laughs> I need to watch more infomercials, where that you know you just stare at the TV for thirty minutes and they tell you every song that's on the CD collection. Yeah, I like those. The, to- the tokens are pretty popular. I like the, those. Yeah. Puff the Magic Dragon. Oh, oh, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yeah. This lightning round is becoming a sort of thunderstorm round. Okay, let me modify it then a little bit. Okay. Let's go to songs with monkey yeah. in their title. Okay, monkey man. <laughs> monkey man <laughs> I, is, was going to be the first one okay, I asked you. I know you. you know that one. I know. I you like didn't that know one. that one. That's the Rolling Stones. That's a great song. That's a great song. Uh, you want me to do that voice? Don't do the voice. Okay. Monkey Gone to Heaven. Don't know that one. The Pixies. No. Yeah. Shock the Monkey. Okay. Peter Gabriel. Good. Monkey is the name of the song. Monkey. monkey. Don't know it. George Michael. Uh, Mickey's Monkey. Don't know that one either. Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Oh. Okay. Here are a bunch of song titles with the word cat in the title. I'm going to name the song. You tell me who sang it. Yep. What's New Pussycat? Tom Jones. Year of the Cat. Al Stewart. Cats in the Cradle. Harry Chapin. Stray Cats Strut. The Stray Cats. Honky Cat. Elton John. Cat People. David Bowie. Putting Out Fire with Gasoline. Is that the same song? Yeah. 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 Cat Scratch Fever. Cat Scratch Fever is Ted Nugent. How about Good Job? (laughs) (laughs) That was a good job. I'm surprised how many songs with animals in the titles the Beatles sang. Yeah, a lot. If I ever write a song, it needs to have animal and title. I think there's something to it. Probably needs to be sort of a good song also. You could do a one-hit wonder. These people could do a one-hit wonder. You could do a one-hit wonder. I know. It's, it's a strange phenomenon. It is strange. Because if you could do one, why mm-hmm. can't you do a second one? Come on. Would you rather have one great song and never be able to do another one? Or just realize, okay, that's all I had. I'm going to enjoy it. 
Well, I have to say you did pretty darn good, Peter. Okay. Just ask me what I know and we're good. Okay, your range is from like the mid-60s to... Late 80s, maybe? Early yeah. 80s? I yeah. Yeah. Your Animals Today Minute for today is about plastic straws and the oceans. Recently, environmental and animal welfare groups have begun asking people to stop using plastic straws because many of them end up in the oceans where they harm aquatic animals. Each year, an estimated 4.8 to 12.7 million metric tons of plastic waste enters the oceans. But why the recent interest in drinking straws, which are a relatively small part of the plastic waste? Well, a video showing the removal of a straw embedded in the nasal passage of a rescued sea turtle definitely raised awareness about the direct effects of plastic waste on aquatic animals. This has been viewed more than 17 million times on YouTube, and a follow-up video showing the removal of a plastic fork from a leatherback turtle's nose has almost 6 million views. Overall, the main types of marine debris are plastics, lost and discarded fishing gear like lines and ghost nets, food packaging, metal objects, medical waste, and cigarette filters. 20% of the total is from fishing gear lost at sea or by illegal dumping. Along coastal regions, small pieces of discarded trash wash into storm drains, which lead to the oceans. Beachgoers and picnickers who litter contribute to ocean pollution and poorly managed municipal dumps and factories are also culprits. Trash that finds its way into rivers and streams likewise can end up as ocean debris. Finally, there is the impact of weather events like hurricanes, which can blow huge amounts of garbage into waterways and oceans. Marine animals are harmed by ingestion and by entanglement. Discarded nets and traps can continue to kill marine life by suffocation and starvation long after they are lost. Waterfowl, fish, and sea mammals ingest plastics of all varieties, filling their stomachs with trash and robbing them of vital calories. Now, back to the burden of straws. A statistic you may read is that each day in the U.S., people discard 500 million straws, or 180 billion per year. Now, even though this figure has been questioned as coming from a single possibly biased source, one thing is certain. At beach cleanups, plastic straws are among the top 10 items removed. So it sure seems reasonable to be concerned about plastic straws as oceanic waste. So, whether to ditch plastic straws will be a decision for each of us to make. That is, unless you are in the coastal cities of Manhattan Beach or San Luis Obispo, California, where disposable plastics, such as food containers and straws, are prohibited. And recently, a bill introduced in California would assess hefty fines and even jail time to restaurant wait staff who supply plastic straws to customers without specifically being asked. Let's see where this goes, but here in California, anything's possible. Some restaurants have already stopped offering straws anyway, or are using compostable ones. And of course, there are voluntary steps each of us can take to reduce our plastic footprint, like reducing the use of other single-use plastics like bags, cups, and water bottles. There are so many durable, practical, and stylish alternatives now available, and there are even stainless steel straws. So, help save the oceans and their creatures and make single-use convenience plastics a thing of the past. 
And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals. 